Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. How many of us are lonely? What is loneliness and how does it affect us? Approximately 25 years ago, when asked the number of friends in whom we could confide, most people in the United States said three. When that question was asked recently, most people said none. Inquiries reveal that 20% of people, 60 million in the United States alone, are feeling lonely at any given moment. And it appears that chronic loneliness may well compete with smoking, obesity, and lack of exercise as a significant health risk. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with William Patrick, the founding editor of the Journal of Life Sciences and co-author of Loneliness, Human Nature, and the Need for Social Connection, along with University of Chicago psychology professor William Cassiopo. My conversation with William Patrick, recorded on October 13, 2008, began when I asked him to define loneliness as used in their book, Loneliness. Loneliness is an aversive condition. It's your subjective sense of dissatisfaction with your social connections. It's not isolation. It's not solitude. It doesn't matter if you're sitting on a mountaintop all by yourself or at your kitchen table with your spouse and your 14 children or at a party. You can be lonely anywhere, and you can be happy most anywhere. When we talk about dissatisfaction with the social connection, how is that felt? Fundamentally, it's a form of pain. This unhappiness is processed in the brain in a little gizmo called the dorsal anterior cingulate, which happens to be the same little section of the brain that processes physical pain. So it's the same as if um, you, know, you put your finger on a hot frying pan and burned your finger. The same part of your brain is saying, there's something wrong here, not good. What follows from that is a disruption in just about every cell in your body. And this dissatisfaction it can interrupt your sleep. It can make you sick at your stomach. It bathes your body in all, a lot of stress hormones. If it persists too long, it actually can lead to high blood pressure. It really is a systemic thing, and it fundamentally deregulates many, many, many of your body systems. Well, as you mentioned in the book, E.O. Wilson from Harvard talks about our species as belonging to a tribe. So maybe you can fit this in for us from the prehistoric way our ancestors walked on the earth to how we are now. This takes us back, actually, to what I said about physical pain and why loneliness can be so disruptive. In fact, loneliness and the sense of rejection, social isolation, again, a subjective sense of social isolation, is just about the most disruptive and stressful thing we can feel. It's actually less stressful to get shot at than it is to be, you know, fighting with your spouse or worried about your children and, you know, those social things. They've done experiments where psychologists bring in, you know, a big group of people and they give you bogus psychological tests. 
so that one group are told that, you know, according to this test you just took, you're actually very accident prone. You may not know this. It may not have, may not have shown up yet. But, boy, going into the future, you are going to be in the emergency room. You're going to just all breaking legs, having automobile accidents. It's really going to be rough physically. And another group, they say, oh, boy, you know, according to this test, oh, sorry to tell you this, but, uh, you know, you maybe have a lot of friends now. Maybe you're married. But going into the future... Oh, you are, it's just going to be bleak. You'll be divorced and remarried probably, and most of your friends will probably disappear from your life. You face a life of social isolation. People who were led to believe that they're, they're in danger of all this physical threat, there's no decline in their performance and their thinking in, in anything. They've been given the bogus information. Exactly. And in subconsciously treated as bogus? Uh, no, it, it's, it's presented as if this is totally legit. Because you know, here you are, the psychology professor is telling you you've taken this test, and boy, this is what it reveals about you. But how is it received? Because you talk about uh, loneliness being subjective. Well, see, I'm not quite there yet. This is a test of sort of instantaneous rejection. And sometimes this affects the mood. They have ways of discounting the mood. The real distinction is that the people who get the bad news about their physical well-being going forward, they deal with it, they roll with it, they do okay. The people who are told they're going to be socially isolated, immediately their cognitive ability declines, their willpower declines, and they lose emotional self-control. All these things go haywire. And with loneliness per se, rather than just a, a momentary jolt of rejection, this persistent feeling that you're, that you're not happy about your social connections, you are feeling isolated, again, whether you're literally isolated or not, not only does it impair your cognitive ability, feeling ability, and your empathy and your willpower and all of that, but it has the power to alter the DNA transcription in your immune cells. That's how powerful and pervasive this particular threat is. It, again, over time will increase your blood pressure, it disrupts your sleep, bathes you in stress hormones. It's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly bad for you. And here, and taking it back to the pain, here's the reason why, to the uh, hunter-gatherer's primitive life. Six million years ago, our species, we're a bunch of four-foot-tall, 70-pound little hominids with sharp sticks. If you're stuck out on the plains of East Africa, four feet tall with a little sharp stick, you are in trouble if you're all by yourself. So the threat to isolation, we are, we are an, an obligatorily gregarious species. We really depend on our social bonds for our protection. Back in our environment of evolutionary origin, to be alone, to be left behind by your band was tantamount to a death sentence. So that's where this, uh, the, the origins of this incredible sense of fear that is systemic. Let's talk about this in, in a uh, somewhat practical situation here in the United States that has um, the highest percentage of people in, incarcerated um, among the populations of the world. When someone is in jail, and certainly when they're in solitary confinement, uh, they're in the situations that you describe. You talk about how isolation disrupts thinking abilities, willpower, and so forth. How do you see that in meeting the constitutional requirements in, in our country of someone actively participating with their attorney? In my day job, I practice law. Well, one thing I'd point out is that, yes, solitary confinement, there is a, a good reason. It's the, it's the harshest uh, punishment you know, allowable under you know, 
outside of Guantanamo in the in the modern judicial systems because uh, to be completely isolated again you're going to suffer all this deregulation it's going to make you kind of crazy harsher than death yeah within the the prison confines i guess with the death sentence they're taking you out of prison into another realm but it is indeed a very harsh penalty i think the question would be for someone short of solitary maybe maybe with solitary too there would be difficulties with their ability to participate in their own defense. That's an interesting point that I really hadn't thought of. Let's talk about children. And uh, you talk about the feedback loop between parent and child and how it relates to a child's first experience with loneliness. The susceptibility to loneliness is genetic. It's not, you know, like most major personality traits, it's about it's about half based on our genes and half on our environment born with a certain you know genetic propensity to to need social connection either high or low and that and and the environment in which you grew up whether you got those hugs from mommy and daddy and you felt included you felt good or you didn't it's like a thermostat you know that is your uh, set point for you know some people can be forest rangers and you know sailors on the deep blue sea or you know jobs where they're isolated they don't really see a lot of people they don't stay in close physical proximity to, with their loved ones and they can be perfectly okay other people, they really need to rub elbows with their, their buddies and work in an office and maybe, you know, call their mom or their sister every day, and they just have a much, much uh, higher need. The environmental part of that, uh, it remains constant, pretty much constant. Constant throughout life? Yes, throughout life. The environmental part of that, again, is set in the, the world of sort of, you know, early childhood development and attachments and, and so on. So. You talk about hugs, but then you also mention uh, talking with a relative on a, on a frequent basis. But then towards the end of your book, where, where you have a section on getting it right, you mention the surprising finding is that having a romantic partner who reacts actively and constructively to your good fortune is actually more conducive to a happy marriage than having a partner who can soothe you in bad times. Mm-hmm. There's parallels to that, I presume, in parent-child relationships. I don't know that there's any um, have been experiments or data to define that particularly, but it certainly makes sense. This isn't always the case, but it certainly can be that having someone who soothes you and comforts you in bad times can sort of border into a, a codependency. But you do talk about uh, the parent kissing the owie on the child. Absolutely. But I think just in terms of pure childhood attachment and development, I think those comforts are vitally important. But so is that sense of, you know, you can do it. You you can get out there. No, no, we, you don't need to stay back here hugging mommy's knee. Go out and play baseball with the other kids. It's the secure attachment that allows the child to venture forth into the world. They have the, the experiments where they, you know, babies sort of crawl around on the floor and so there's a lot of eye contact, the baby making sure he or she knows where mommy is at every moment. And it's the babies who are, feel really secure that mommy's always there, she really loves me. They're the ones who can explore without uh, such anxiety. Well, let's talk about how we work to satisfy our need to belong. But before we do that, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Bill Patrick, who is co-author with John Cassiopo in a book, Loneliness, Human Nature and the Need for Social Connection. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Bill, the need to belong. We come from tribes the problems with social separation. I think one of the most 
devastating statistics in, in the book is uh, on a study, a survey, sociological survey done about 25 years ago where they ask people all across America, how many confidants do you have? You know, how many people can you really trust, open up your heart, and just say whatever you, you need and, and, and really feel close? Well, the, the modal number, which is not the average, but just the most common number was three, three confidants. They repeated that survey uh, just a couple of years ago, so about you know, almost 25 years later, uh, and the modal number, the most common response to the question, how many confidants do you have, is zero. What do you see as the cause for that? Well, I think there are a lot of things. Fundamentally, and what we address fairly a fair amount in the book, is just we have a mindset since the, the time of, of Thomas Hobbes when humanity, human nature, is the war of all against all, and it's all about competition and self-interest and getting ahead, and you know, sort of it's part and parcel of uh, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, you know, that's been around for four or five hundred years since the Industrial Revolution. There's been since. The, the Industrial Revolution, and there's been a steady decline in you know, westernized industrial countries, a steady decline in um, the importance given to family and social connection. You know, In other cultures, they don't watch the clock as carefully. They, maybe they don't show up for their appointment with their doctor because they had to talk to their mother. You know, that, that's an acceptable reasoning in other parts of the world, whereas with us, it's, well, what do you mean? You just, you know, you got to show up on time or you got to show up for your job. The clock is what dictates it. The, the social connections are sort of, well, that's nice stuff. We all know it's important, but, you know, you got to make a buck. you gotta, you got to take the, the job promotion in Cincinnati or, you know, uh, go, go on the business trip to be gone for three weeks. So we just haven't given it the value that it's due, and I think it's part of what the book does is show you this isn't just, you know, kumbaya and, and, and uh, you know, touchy-feely uh, stuff. This is deeply serious. You know, the, we have a health care crisis in this country, and, the, you know, the health effects of loneliness are, are absolutely similar to the health effects of smoking and obesity. It has that serious an effect on our health. With media and housing patterns, uh, people moving to exervia, a highly mobile society, an aging society, there's more and more people living alone. Uh, incredibly increasing numbers. We push the elderly to kind of ghettos. They're not integrated in to be there for their grandkids and the grandkids to be there for them. And there are a lot of forces that are just increasing this sort of atomization uh, throughout the culture. Working contrary to our genetic inheritance. Absolutely, because again, we, the West and against the Industrial Revolution, we really prize rationality, you know, that we're being rational and reasonable. Well, that's really kind of an illusion. It's also sort of putting a lot of people, the economists and the business people, often on the wrong side of Descartes' error. Uh, René Descartes, uh, four or five hundred years ago, made this split between mind and body, that they're totally independent. Well, we now know in neurobiology that there is no split, that the mind is the body, and the body is the mind. It's all completely integrated, which is part of the reason that something like a, a social, your social environment, you know, what's going on in the room across from you can, can get into the nucleus of your immune cell and mess up the transcription of the DNA. You know, it's very powerful stuff. We just, we, we sort of think of that as, as sissy stuff, kid stuff, and that the hard-driving competitive business attitudes or, or you know, or the rational grown-up way to do things. And we pay an incredible, incredible price for it. We're, we're often just not not nearly as happy and healthy as we might be uh, otherwise. 
perhaps an unintended consequence of a corporate form of government? Well, actually, at the very beginning, there was a certain intentionality in the very first days of the uh, Industrial Revolution of England. Nobody wanted to take those jobs in the factories. They may not have had much to eat, but they were out raising sheep on the on the land. And the, the, the industrial owners actually drove people off of the land so that they would have to take those jobs for 12 hours a day or in those factories. So there was a, a, an intentional drive to sort of disrupt family life, village life, you know, kind of the way it had always been. Because in a more traditional culture, dad's workplace was his living place. This is uh, seen reportedly in China, where people move to factories uh, and work six, seven days a week. We cover that in the book, that China is a prime example, that the mistakes that we've made in the West are being replicated as fast as possible in China and elsewhere. I want to compare two aspects of your book. One is the part of cognitive therapy where you talk about uh, substantive ways uh, or specific ways, perhaps better said, to deal with loneliness and with a mind-body connection where you talk about hope entails irrationality. Hmm, interesting. Where you talk about that is, is where you talk about the idea to start a new business. They say that the happiest and most successful people are often unrealistically optimistic. In other words, being a total realist is a good way to be depressed and to never get anything done, certainly in the social world. We are in many ways the architects of our own social reality. We're the architects of a lot of our realities. There's a half empty, half full. You know, you can construct, construe reality um, any number of ways, and this, the data shows that those who, some would say naively sometimes, without being totally delusional, you know, to, to construct it with a positive spin is actually the best way to do business and the best way to live your life. It, you know, you're all going to die someday. There's no point worrying about it today. You know, you just get on with it and, and hope for the best. I think there's a syndrome of chronic loneliness that people sort of get trapped in this feedback loop, and it comes way back to the beginning of what we were, when we were talking about uh, loneliness as a pain response based largely on fear. I mean, it's terrifying to feel that you are isolated. You're like that hunter-gatherer out in the savannas of Africa six million years ago. You think you're going to die because you're, you're lonely. You, you, it hurts that bad, and it, and it scares your body that much. Because it's a fear response, people become very defensive, and their stress alarm signals are really hyperactivated. You know, you walk into a room, a party, let's say a freshman mixer or something at college, and uh, you're feeling lonely. Well, you walk in, and what do you do? You're, you're sensing threats because you're afraid. You're on surveillance. You, everything you see is a potential threat. And, oh, my God, I wore the wrong thing. Everyone's looking at me. Everybody hates me. I'm, I, you know, I, do I have spinach in my teeth? Because you're so caught up in this own drama, this drama that you're kind of spinning out of your own head based on this fear that you're feeling, you're not really there to be available to other people. Eye contact, warmth, openness, that's all it takes is just to really be receptive. You don't have to be a politician or a TV star. It's just someone who's just there. You know, the eye, the eye contact, the openness, just receptive because that person who is the socially connected person is not carrying on that drama and that dialogue about, oh, my God, they don't like me, they hate me, I look fat, I, I wore the wrong thing. You know, they're, not, they're not afraid. They're just, hi, how are you? Tell me about your life. How are you You say, uh, show genuine interest in another human being, expecting nothing in return. A lot of the fear is coupled with this burning need 
it's really a feed me, feed me kind of feeling. You know, I've, I was deprived in childhood. My, my last boyfriend ran off and deserted me. My no good husband left town. My, you know, or my wife died or, you know, sad things, uh, bad things happen. And, and so you're left with this burning hunger. Feed me, feed me, feed me. The solution to the conundrum of chronic loneliness is not seeking to be fed. The solution is kind of getting in the kitchen and helping everybody else cook and making sure feeding others, being there to feed others. Some of the happiest people I've ever seen worked in a, a hospice who were for AIDS patients, who were surrounded by death all day long. But these people were just sort of gloriously happy, it seemed, because they knew every minute that what they were doing really mattered. And they were really giving their all to these dying people, and so it wasn't depressing for them. They were, they really felt good. Well, any time we do something nice for somebody, again, it's not superficial. Your body in that moment is getting an enormous rush of positive hormones and neurotransmitters and stress reduction elements that is physically, physically very, very healing for you and really very good for you. People ask sometimes, is loneliness like depression? Is there going to be a drug for it someday? There's no need for a drug because the chemicals that help you are right there, and you get them from these positive social interactions, but you get those interactions are based on reaching out and extending yourself to this other person, but you can't expect much. I mean, someone who's suffering from chronic loneliness, if we say go out and you know and extend yourself to others too ambitiously, could be a disaster because they're going to you know uh, walk up and say hi, I want to talk to you about baseball. You know, and that could be very awkward. No, no, you can't expect uh, someone to immediately become your best friend just because you're extending themselves yourself. If you don't expect anything, if you can just say hi, hope you're having a nice day, you know, or how are you? or you're at the library and you say, did you like that book? I like that book. Just, you know, you say something to someone, hoping, extending, but you're not, you're not counting on it. And a lot, surprising amount of the time people would say, yeah, I did like that book. It was really great. How are you? I mean, you'll get that, that little bit of, uh, you know, the, the echo in the canyon coming back. But even if you don't get that, when you help the blind person cross the street, when you even leaving coins in a Coke machine – for someone else to find, you get the good feeling, the tiny little hint of the helper's high that the nurses and social workers and people get when they're really devoting their lives to other people. Or paying the toll for the person behind you at the toll booth. And they've actually done studies that if someone finds coins in a, in a Coke machine, their mood is going to go up and they are going to, in the next hour or two, going to be more generous and helpful toward other people. So there really is an element of sort of pay it forward. And I know a lot of uh, psychologists who are aware of this data. When they're having a bad day, they go down the hall, put some coins in the coin machine <laughs> to, to, just to have someone else find, knowing that someone else, that they're, they're going to make the world a better place, improve the general mood. Uh, same thing with, the, you know, you're driving through the toll booth over the bridge and you pay 50 cents for yourself, and, yeah, here's 50 cents for the car behind me. So the car behind pulls up, and the guy says, your toll's already been paid. You can make the world a, a little bit better or a little bit worse in everything you do. This is an interesting approach to uh, sales and uh, corporate capitalism. Well, uh, yeah, and the next book that John, John and I are working on will be actually uh, taking this loneliness data and, and putting it into that environment of, you know, if this is truly human nature, you know, that we are not, 
driven entirely by greed and, and competition. You know, that those things exist, but we are, again, fundamentally social creatures. We are actually fundamentally hyper-cooperative and even altruistic. You know, if we weren't, if we weren't hyper-cooperative, we'd be a chimp. You know, chimp and humans, are, you know, have something over 98% shared uh, genes. Where we six million years ago, we were very similar. Where we got our competitive advantage was not by being stronger and not even by being smarter, because at the beginning we weren't. Where we had the advantage is that we would form alliances and be cooperative far, far more. And alliances that weren't based on narrow self-interest entirely, weren't based on kinship relationships entirely. Uh, you know, a chimp has about a 50-50 chance. I mean, maybe they'll help you, may help another chimp. Maybe they won't. It's about 50-50. With a human, at 15 months, a human baby, if, if it's something that she, that she has the ability to help, you know, like push the applesauce a few inches closer, she will invariably help. We are just genetically programmed to be the species that does cooperate. Well, Bill Patrick, co-author with John Cassiopo of Loneliness, Human Nature, and the Need for Social Connection, I look forward to talking with you when your next book comes out. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, One is, what's an important concept that you've learned recently? I think the most profound has to do with uh, where we were just uh, talking, especially given the credit crisis, I mean, the the economic crisis that we have right now and what you said about the corporate world. The rationality and the rational decision-making and uh, self-interested, the greed is good, that has dominated certainly the last 30, 40 years of American life has, uh, you know, been seriously called into question with deregulation. You know, government is always the problem and just turn the markets loose. I think the, the it's time for a, a reevaluation of some of that thinking and absorbing more of the, the picture of humanity and human motivation and the way of living that we're talking about that's based on this laboratory evidence, you know, this physiological evidence about who we really are. And can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Probably the most interesting book I've read, say, over the summer or whatnot. I, I may not have the name of it right, but it was The Gospel of Q, or the Q Gospel. For whatever reason, I read a lot of church history and theology and classical history to sort of get my mind off the things that are more relevant to the day-to-day. But it is something about finding the tribe in your social and ancestral roots. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We are a meaning-making species. We connect and we try to find meaning. That's what humans do. And this book is sort of an analysis of the New Testament based on layers, what textual scholars know about when which part was written. And they really found at least three layers that the most ancient parts and the most credible parts really begin with uh, uh, the kind of wisdom doctrines of Jesus, like, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, which again comes back to our work uh, where he's saying, love one another, the kingdom of God is within you. That stuff is the fundamental core of the uh, sort of historical Jesus, and the rest was sort of layered on 80 years later, 120 years later, by Mark and by Matthew and by Luke and Paul and all the rest of them. When you get back to the fundamental earliest teachings, according to the scholarship that's available, the message of Jesus is not unlike the message of this book, which fundamentally says, love one another, connect with one another, do good to one another, uh, do unto others as you've had them do unto you. That's the best way to live your life. Well, now laboratory science 2,000 years later is saying, you know what? He's right. Well, Bill Patrick, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. 
William Patrick is the co-author of Loneliness, Human Nature and the Need for Social Connection, along with University of Chicago psychology professor John Cassiopo. The book that William Patrick recommends is The Lost Gospel, The Book of Q and Christian Origins by Burton Mack. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. They're also available in CD format for $14 each. At Radio Curious, we appreciate your thoughts and ideas about our programming and enjoy hearing from you. Our address is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Our email address is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Thank you for joining us.